Have you ever had the experience where you're doing great in life? You're connecting with people, you're enjoying your work, you're being productive, your home space is all clean and nice, and you think, you know, I think I got this life thing figured out. And then, bam, something happens that makes you feel rejected or angry or panicked. And instead of just being thrown off for 15 minutes or an hour, you go way off the tracks for days or more. And if you went through abuse and neglect as a kid, this is probably a phenomenon that you know really well. And when you're kind of offline for those days, getting things done can feel almost impossible. You know what you should do, like get to work on time, clean the kitchen, wish your friend a happy birthday, or just take a shower, but you just can't do it. And the ordinary word for this is procrastination. But for people with childhood PTSD, procrastinating can have some harsh overtones of depression and a feeling of paralysis and a dread of putting on your clothes and getting back out there again to do what you do best in the world. But here's the weird thing. It can also feel really comforting for a while, like a cozy cocoon procrastination. And that's because for those of us who get easily triggered and overstimulated by doing things that challenge us, you know, stepping up, putting ourselves out there, being vulnerable with another person, there can be a strong countervailing force that wants to just pull you back into the cocoon, just snug and safe, not triggered. But it's not safe, is it? Not at all. To avoid life. Everything good in your life, all the growth that you'll have as a person, depends on you spending some time regularly out in the world. Not all your time, but a balance between the time you spend striving for your dreams and connecting with people and being brave in the world on one hand, and then on the other hand, the quiet time that you need to collect yourself and get re-regulated, to re-regulate your brain and nervous system, which for most people with CPTSD can get very frazzled and dysregulated during your out time. So let's call, call it that out time and in time. <laughs> and what throws it out of balance is how you bring it back to some middle place where you can be both courageous and take care of yourself and not have these long periods of spiritual torpor and self-sabotage that are so common for people with CPTSD and that hold you back from what you want. Okay, so let's talk this through because the solution lies in a combination of dealing with your dysregulation and then taking action. There it is, okay? Re-regulate, take action. That's where I'm gonna take you with this talk. Now, if you're new to my channel and new to the concept of being dysregulated, this is the name for the disorienting phenomenon that happens to everyone sometimes, but it's especially common for people with CPTSD. And when it's happening, you might experience it as a feeling of discombobulation, numbness, being flustered, or not being able to stick with your thoughts long enough to remember what you were saying, or you walk into a room and you can't remember why you went in there. Have you ever done that? So dysregulation is often mistaken for ADHD, Sometimes it might be ADHD, sometimes it might just be CPTSD. With CPTSD, your attention when you're dysregulated can be just like a bag of cats, but so is your whole nervous system, and it can make you emotionally overreactive, so when that's happening, you lash out or you do things impulsively, or it can make you feel so overwhelmed that you wanna just lay down in bed with Netflix and procrastinate. So sometimes, 
Maybe it's a conscious choice to take a break, fine. But procrastination for us is often triggered by dysregulation. And we get so used to seeking comfort and quiet and low stimulation, you know, niceness, softness, blankness, that we use inaction like a drug sometimes. And it can be like an addiction. And many of us are a lot more prone to other self-soothing but self-destructive behaviors when we're procrastinating, like binge eating or smoking weed all day or playing video games or fantasizing about someone who either isn't available or who doesn't even exist. So we check out, we're just gone, we're not here. And the trouble with that is in life, people who aren't here don't get very far. You have to be present to win, as some people say. Now our fantasy is often that in a minute or tomorrow we'll leap into action again. And it's sometimes true that you need some rest. But the fantasy of procrastination is that if you could just lie around avoiding your life long enough, your batteries will finally get recharged. And then what? It'll all be solved. I don't know. Inspiration will come back. Energy will come back. Confidence will come back. And you'll be able to do all those things that everyone's counting on you for. You'll be able to get ahead in life. And wanting all those things to happen is good. It's not stupid. It's right to want all those things because this is what our lives are for, to, to rise up, to heal from what has happened so that we can become our real selves and bring to the world what we are capable of bringing. And that's the tragedy of CPTSD is that gets blocked. There are good things that we were made to bring and it feels terrible knowing that you're meant for more than where you are right now, but you can't quite act on it. And in my experience, this is the most haunting kind of depression. The thing I always want to procrastinate on, for example, is making these videos. Why? Because it's hard. <laughs> it takes a lot of work coming up with something out of thin air. Like, you know, this is like coming out of nowhere and then fixing up my face and my hair, turning on all the lights and the equipment and saying it on camera like I am now. It's hard and it's really, really risky. You guys might judge me or criticize me and people do, you know, they check out the comments sometime. We try to take the hateful comments out. And so mostly what you see is all the kind and beautiful comments that, you know, the vast majority of people contribute here. But does all that love stop me from getting hurt by the haters? No, they criticize my hair, my opinions. The, or the opinions they mistakenly think that I have that I don't. They call me dangerous. They call me ignorant. I had someone give me hell a couple weeks ago because they thought that the dimples in my chin were snake bite piercings. And they lectured me on how unprofessional it was for somebody in my position to have that and that it was culturally hostile or something to native traditions where that comes from. And it was, they were just like, I don't even know where they get this. Even when the comments are stupid, it makes me want to give up, all right? That happens to everybody, it happens to me. There's a therapist in Indiana who spends, it must be hours, and it's been going on weeks and months, just like obsessed with trying to tell me that I have no right to teach my experience and my opinions here. And honestly, it feels like when people put me down, it totally dysregulates me. I'm human, just like everybody, and I have CPTSD. But what good will it do if I run from these triggers, if I let it stop me? Everything I do, I do because I've learned to face what hurts me and to calm my triggers and get clarity in my mind about my purpose. Not the hateful therapist or the piercing bully person, 
what I'm trying to do, stepping forward into my small part and doing something good in the world, doing the best I can. You hear me. And in fact, your kind comments are hugely encouraging. And the encouragement that you give other people here is more powerful than you will ever know. It makes a huge difference for people. Sometimes one kind comment could change the course of someone's life. So you're really doing something when you do that. Now, if you say unkind things to people here, we can't catch it every time it happens, but just know bullies and haters are always going to be in our midst. It's just part of the world and we don't have to let them win. And that means we don't have to let them silence us or hold us down. And so everything depends on learning to keep your brain and your nervous system regulated despite what anybody is doing. Because when you're regulated, you can think clearly. You can make decisions and act on those decisions. And that is everything. Thinking clearly, taking action, operating in your own best interest. Like how many times has CPTSD taken that from you? That's what you can do. That's how you can heal from what happened to you and change your life. You cannot let the people who hurt you now or in the past stop you from becoming who you are. And you don't have to be perfect at this to get started. If you think you get dysregulated, there's a quiz down below where you can check your experiences against a list of common symptoms, by the way. That's right down there. There's also all my courses down there if you want to check those out. But I hear from so many of you out there who are not able to get out of an abusive situation or who are not able to financially care for yourself and the people who count on you or who are not able to show the world who you really are because the risk involved in these things from putting yourself out there and risking criticism and failure feels like it'll be so dysregulated that you would disintegrate, that you'd just break down and never be okay again. And you might've been in that place before or close to it. I have too, and it's terrifying, but there's a gentle path through that place and up and out of it. And it involves learning to identify when you're dysregulated and learning to get re-regulated again. And from a regulated place, your heart is beating at a nice rate, your breathing is calm and regular, your brain is humming along and you're like attuned and aware of what you feel, what's going on around you. So that now you can take action in the loveliest sort of ways. Things get easier. You're, you're, you're on a level playing field with people who didn't get get traumatized, who aren't dysregulated. I mean, you will get dysregulated again. We all will, but you'll know how to notice it and bring yourself back to a regulated and calm, attentive state. You'll be able to notice when you're hungry or tired or feeling like the person in front of you isn't really safe for you. Your red flag detector switches back on. You might get an impulse to lash out or smoke a cigarette, but You'll, you'll feel a more spacious set of choices in front of you when that happens, what you want to do about it. And you can choose to use your attention. This is my favorite. You can choose to use your attention the way that you want to use your attention. You can learn. You can listen carefully to someone who's opening up to you. You can have insight. Now, it's human nature to desire the easy path in any given moment, to crap out, lie down, avoid any trouble. But it's also human nature. It's like coded into us to want something more. It, it comes and gets me at like three in the morning sometimes when I've been procrastinating. I wake up just feeling agitated and guilty and demoralized. Do you ever have that? 
I want the comfort of avoiding things that are hard and triggering, but even more than that, I want the joy I get from trying, you know, from putting myself out there. For me, it's going ahead and making the video, and that's how it was for me today. And yet here I am. I feel good. I get to post this video and then read all the wise and tender things that you will be saying in the comments, and it makes me feel useful and real. Now, do you have something that does that for you? Have you been avoiding it? Are you feeling ready to change that problem and start taking good, healthy actions that make you feel good? So even if you wake up in the middle of the night sometimes, worried that life is passing you by, you go to bed that night knowing that today you, you actually did what you needed to do. You lived your life. You worked on your healing. You contributed positive things. You moved in a good direction. This doesn't just require healing. It is healing. This is what it looks like. Those good actions in the right measure, taking action, pausing to re-regulate, then taking action again. It's how you climb out of the trauma ditch as many times as you need to. Because believe me, you know, it's like two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. There's this idea out there that to heal from trauma, you need to feel your feelings. And some people will encourage you to feel your feelings and explore your feelings and trust your feelings. But when you have PTSD from childhood, the problem isn't always that you don't feel what you're supposed to feel. More of the time, I think the problem is that you do feel your feelings too much. They get overloaded. And I can show you how to reel that back into a healthy balance. It's called emotional dysregulation. And in my opinion, it can do even more damage than being out of touch with your feelings. Your life can get dominated by your emotions. Are you familiar with that feeling? Your relationships get dominated by your emotions. Your career gets dominated by your emotions. And being so emotional, like having feelings that are inappropriately intense by most people's standards, or when you get emotional at inappropriate times, that's not something where feeling your feelings is the solution. In my view, emotional dysregulation really is kind of like a wrecking ball or like a tornado that spins around and wrecks everything in its path. Where's it gonna go? You don't know. It just sort of comes up out of nowhere and boom, starts destroying things. Sometimes emotional dysregulation goes in the opposite direction and it just sort of like, like it's like a light bulb, you know, where all of a sudden it glows really brightly and then goes out. It's dark, there's nothing, you're not feeling anything. Blazing light, nothing. With complex PTSD, what is often a symptom of emotional dysregulation is that flatness after a big outburst. So you might be familiar with some of those patterns. Feelings go out of control. They're coming out in bursts. They're out of proportion to what's going on or at an inappropriate time, like crying at work or having an angry outburst at your internet provider when you're on a customer service call. And it also refers to going flat emotionally. So it's dysregulated. It's, it's just like not kind of in the middle area that would be appropriate or normal or comfortable for human communication. So big spikes, nothing. But either way, when your feelings are dysregulated, you might say and do things that, are, that only overwhelm you further. And then that actually create new traumas that make your situation even harder than it was. So it can be a vicious circle. So one example could be 
having an argument with your partner. So let's say something makes you angry and they forgot you had friends coming to dinner and you cooked, but your partner arrived an hour late. You didn't know where they were. They never called and the guests arrived and you didn't have an answer for them. And you called your partner three or four times and you texted and you called and you were getting more and more frantic. You're in the other room to try to hide how angry you are. And the friends are there and you're trying to act normal and like everything's fine and it's no big deal that your partner's not there. And then an hour into the dinner, your partner walks in. They totally forgot. And they see everyone and they remember, oh my gosh, they're so sorry. And they're embarrassed. And the guests are like, it's fine, it's fine. And you're like, where were you? And you're trying to act normal. You're trying to keep your emotions kind of in the bandwidth of not totally awful for the guests, but you can't. And so they're ready to sit down now and enjoy the company. But for you, it's too late. That's emotional dysregulation at work because Old feelings of being ignored and abandoned are just exploding up out of the past. It, you know, it is an offense that your partner forgot. That's not cool. But the intensity that's coming out of you has more to do with the past. It's, you know it because it's like filling up your chest. It's in your gut. It's in your head. You might start getting a headache. And the guests are there. So don't you hate that? Getting emotionally dysregulated in front of company. It's your reaction to the situation that's now ruining the evening. Has this happened to you? In the moment, it feels like these huge emotions are the only feelings a person could have. And now later, you're going to have the insight that your reaction was actually too much, that you became the problem person of the evening. But when it's happening, it just feels real. It feels necessary to be that angry, right? It's moments like this when maybe you've said things you didn't mean because now you're not just dealing with disappointment and hurt, but you're believing that nothing's any good because you know what's driving you at that point? Shame. You see old shame of like that old well of anger and emotion came up and kind of blasted out. There's like this point where, you know, it's feeling really real and you get so mad and then it blasts out of you. And that often sort of triggers you to start recovering and coming back to reality from like, wait, it's not really that bad. So then the shame comes in and you feel worse. Then you might feel a need to check out. You go flat. You can't apologize. You know, everything. Well, this is how friendships fall apart. This kind of thing is how it falls apart. And it's not your fault you got this way. This is a really common and normal response to having grown up with trauma. But of course, we all want to work on it and learn to handle it even better. Even if your partner is used to this kind of behavior and they stick around, this kind of conflict that doesn't feel realistic, that feels overblown, it'll gradually drain away love and trust and close off connection that otherwise would be getting deeper and getting sweeter over time. So that's another way relationships get destroyed. So this is what I mean when I sort of give the side eye to the idea that what we all need is just to feel our feelings or you just need to grieve or you just need to get in touch with your anger. Like that's not always the best advice for everybody. It's not always what's needed. For some people with CPTSD, what's needed is to self-regulate and get more control over emotions and to have some tools in your tool belt to know how to do that on the spot, even before you really know what's going on with you, even before you've been able to process or talk through what happened. Just when you realize like, uh oh, I'm going over the top. How do you pull yourself back? Because that's how you can make a positive change for the better. Once you can manage that, you start having a huge amount of space where you can you can talk things out. You can ask questions. You can express yourself and say, you were late for dinner. We had company. I was so embarrassed. You can say that, but you can say that in proportion to, you know, what the problem really is. All right. So I'll show you how to do that. 
you'll find that if you can control emotions before they get intense, so starting early, you may have this little window of opportunity to do that. You can avoid a lot of problems that come from overreactions and overwhelm, and it's easier to get back to a calm and regulated state then. So I have a friend who visualizes emotional dysregulation as an airplane taking off. You may have heard me talk about that. And regulating her emotions is what she calls keeping the airplane on the ground. And I love that. That is what it feels like because, yeah. <laughs> and so you can think of that too. How are you going to keep your airplane on the ground once it takes off? You know, it's just a great big deal. <laughs> so how are you going to do that? You can do it. You can stay regulated even when you're upset if you understand what's happening and you practice, practice, practice. So when you go into a strong emotional reaction, one is notice it's happening. Are you flooding with emotion? Are you feeling adrenaline? Are you panicking? Are you starting to cry? So say to yourself, I'm having an emotional reaction because it's just true. You can just say that to yourself. Just ground yourself in reality with that. Ah, I'm having an emotional reaction. So another thing you can do is slow down the interaction. Just get it way slowed down. A lot of us are very sensitive to hurrying and yet once we start panicking, we start rushing. So it sort of compounds itself. So you can just back up, take big pauses between what is said. Take your time to answer, take your time to say things, consider your words, prepare to see things in a new way. Now, a lot of the time, simply slowing things down can reduce the overwhelm. That's all that's needed. Less overwhelm means you can recover your perspective right there and then and experience a little calming effect inside. If you're about to cry and you don't want to cry because you're at work or you're giving a speech or you don't want to be vulnerable in a particular situation, here's a great trick. Imagine that on your stomach, like right below your belly button, that you have a knob, all right? And the knob goes all the way up to 10 or 11 if you like spinal tap. <laughs> if you have emotional dysregulation, it definitely goes to at least 11, all right? So now imagine that the tears are coming because you accidentally left the knob at about eight. So now just in your mind, dial your belly knob just down to two. Just bring it down to two. And that's sometimes that's all that's needed to just like just stop the tears, control the tears and the sadness. It is like somebody left a gate open or something and the cows are running out. So you just shut the gate or bring it down to two. You're not cutting off your emotions 100%, but just controlling the opening there. All right, if it's anger that's happening, use what used to be called restraint of pen and tongue. That's a really nice phrase. I use it all the time. It's so helpful to me. And it means don't say anything or write anything, including emails, texts, letters. Don't do it when you're angry. What happens is this venting will escalate your emotional overwhelm and your thinking gets distorted and you might say things you don't actually believe and that you'll regret. And of course, when if you've ever had a conflict over text, it never goes well. There's no way to communicate the tenderness or the caring or the listening. It just sounds like somebody's snapping no matter how you handle it. So don't do that. When you're angry, don't write. Instead, because it's important to express yourself, Promise yourself that you'll express yourself just a little later when you're calm. You can find a gentle, polite way to postpone any more conversation. You can just say, I really want to have this conversation. It's important to me. I, I definitely don't want to, you know, get all intense on you. Could I just have 15 minutes so I can, you know, just bring my emotions together? You don't even have to say that if you're at work. You can just say, you know what? I have this other call. I need to go do that. Can I come back and have this conversation? with you in 15 minutes. So whether you choose to tell anybody that you're taking time out to emotionally re-regulate or not, 
people will generally accept that you can continue the conversation later. And whether they realize <laughs> what was about to happen or not, it's good for everybody for you to show up kind of regulated for all your conversations. It's just, it's good for you, it's good for them. If it feels urgent for you to express yourself, that is often a cue that you need to take double time pausing and getting re-regulated. The sense of urgency is not always reliable with CPTSD. It's, it's basically your old like emergency response kicking in over stuff that's just about communication or saying how you feel. So it, when it really is an emergency, if you need to pull somebody out of a rushing river or you're in an abusive situation and you need to get out the door, of course urgency is appropriate. But if it's just about communicating something or trying to talk something through, if you feel urgency, it's very likely going to only benefit if you pause for 30 minutes or an hour or tomorrow. There's very little that has to be solved like in, in any given day that's important. So if you can come back regulated in more time, that's really good. Don't underestimate the damage you can do when you, when you try to uh, solve problems when you're dysregulated. It's kind of like driving drunk, okay? All right, another thing you can do, do some emergency writing. And I'm talking about the daily practice way of writing that I teach. I have a free course. I always link it on the free tools page of my website. The free tools page of my website is always linked down in the description section below. But it's called the daily practice. And I teach a specific technique where you can get your fearful and resentful thoughts on paper, kind of ask for them to be removed, rest your mind. Give it a try. Um, so many of us have had it experience life-changing um, healing from being able to put our emotions on paper before just kind of throwing them at another person. It often feels, especially if you were neglected as a kid, that what you really, really need is to tell somebody how much they hurt you. Because there's this fantasy that if you tell them, then they'll be like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'll come in and I'll care for you and I'll help you feel better. But A, in adult life, that's usually not how people respond when we come, come at them like in, in anger. They don't respond like trying to help us. And if they do, it's probably not coming from a healthy place. But also it's not realistic that other people can, even if they want to, that they can re-regulate your nervous system. It is an inside job. So, so we take those feelings to the paper and have a process for relieving them before having the communication. We do need communication, but it when it's packed up with like all your unmet childhood needs, it becomes it becomes something quite frightening and overwhelming to other people. They're either gonna run or they're gonna pretend, but it's going to be a disappointment and it's gonna hurt your relationship. So paper, that's, that's a suggestion there. What I love about paper, you can do this just about anywhere, in the bathroom, you can do it in the dark of a movie theater, you can do it in the car when you're a passenger, not driving obviously. You can do it in bed in the middle of the night. You can do it at your desk while you're pretending to work. And employers, I'm an employer too. <laughs> But here's the thing, I, I'm not saying that you should just fake work and steal time from your employer like that, but sometimes the most efficient way to get productive in your day is to take the overwhelming emotions and just get them out on paper so that you can return your focus back to the task at hand. That's a good thing to do. It's definitely better than having an emotional meltdown too. All right, another thing you can do is get some hard exercise to kind of like rinse all those stress chemicals out of your body. You can run up and down a flight of stairs a couple times if you are physically able to do that. If you can walk, you can take a brisk walk. Whatever you physically can do to get your heart rate up, maybe just break a little bit of a sweat. It just is so powerful to turn around 
the stress chemicals that are active when you're in, a, in emotional dysregulation. And sometimes, sometimes you can come at emotional dysregulation through reason. Sometimes you have to come at it through physical action. Um, there are a number of ways that you can, that you can approach your healing. So I'm giving you a list of them so you can find your favorites. All right, here's one. This is another physical one. You can wash your hands or in a big pinch, you can take a shower, wash your hands in cold water, splash it on your face. Everybody does that, right? Sometimes. Or wash your hands in nice, warm, soapy water that feels nice and take, just take a minute to feel the water on your hands and the soap and the clean hands and feel how nice that is. You're using these tactile experiences to just sort of come back from this sort of flight away from what's actually happening for your senses right here in the room for you right now. You, you, it, this is called being in your body. And I don't actually believe that people leave their bodies, but that's a metaphor for what it happens when our nervous system is starting to shut down, like quadrants of your brain are just going dim and you're not able to process sensory input from where you are. And that's when you're often vulnerable to you know, outbursts or saying things you don't mean. You want to be in touch with all of your feelings. You want to be in touch with cues. You want to be able to detect danger. Like if you're going up and shouting at somebody on the street, what if they're dangerous? What if they could physically harm you? You need to be tuned in, right? And so that's, that's why physical, physical regulation, neurological regulation goes hand in hand with emotional regulation. So we're learning to master re-regulation of both. It all comes down together and you begin to be centered in a calm awareness. And you're just, you have nice ears to hear what's going on. You have eyes, you have a heart to feel what's going on. And imagine like if you could do that, that would change a lot, right? So emotional dysregulation feels to me, and I think a lot of people, a little bit like a trance, like you're hypnotized. You're a little bit out of touch with some things. You're deeply in touch with, with something else, a feeling. And what, what you need to develop is to have part of you that can sort of stand outside that situation and go, I see that I'm going into a trance-like dysregulation state. And that part of you that can see it's going on can kind of take you gently by the shoulders and say, hey, come on, Anna come on out, let's get out of this dysregulated state. Let's use some tools. Once you have that part of you that can sort of pull you back a little bit when you notice it's happening, you've just gotten on the path to serious change. That's how you do it. Self-awareness, just enough to pull back before you know what to do, before you've solved all your problems. You're just like, okay, this thing is happening. I know it doesn't go well when I you know, say things and try to solve problems like this. Let me take a beat, all right? If you like, you can talk with somebody who is trustworthy, they understand you, and who's not in that moment in a conflict with you, very important, someone else. Sometimes it helps to get an outside perspective, but I don't recommend trying to tell a long story. I don't recommend trying to vent, going into yet another hypnotic trance, and then he did this, and then he did that, and then, ah, ah, you know, have you done that? I've done it. That's bad, that just takes me worse into emotional dysregulation. So the, the discussion, it doesn't usually work that well when you're already upset, but obviously sometimes this can't be avoided and somebody will try to help you and assist you to kind of emotionally calm it. The irony is that one of the hardest things for a person in dysregula emotional dysregulation to hear is, can you calm down? <laughs> Ma'am, please calm down. It's like, Woo! you know, it goes off again. So sometimes it's going to be you by yourself. So one way to check in with yourself when you're having one of those conversations is to ask yourself, is having this conversation making you more dysregulated? Are you feeling more upset? 
Are you maybe talking faster and faster, louder and louder? Are you talking on top of people? These are signs that you're actually going into dysregulation. So if you can have that part of you stand outside and go, oops, I'm getting more dysregulated. You just find a polite way to say, okay, well, thanks for your help. Now get yourself to a private space with your pen and pencil or your tools, your physical tools to start bringing yourself back before you begin talking again. Talking is sometimes the gateway drug to more dysregulation, just saying. Sometimes it's useful, sometimes it's not. We need to learn the difference because when we're dysregulated, the person we're getting all dysregulated on will often also dysregulate and two dysregulating, dysregulated people will often escalate quite badly. You've probably been there. Everything that needs to be said can and should be said, but not necessarily in that moment. If you possibly can, wait until you're regulated, calm, more lucid, able to feel the range of feelings you have about someone and, and not just the angry part, not frantically trying to get them to understand something. These steps, by the way, don't just help you regulate emotionally, but they help you re-regulate your brain and in your body, your heart rate, your breathing, your thinking, your coordination of your you know, feet and hands, your ability to focus. So I have a quiz you can take to, if you want to check some of the symptoms of dysregulation. If you're hearing this and you're like, wait, that happens to me. I got a list of them and you can check them off on this list. That is in my free tools page too that I mentioned on my website, free tools. The link to the free tools page is down below in the description section. When you're re-regulating your emotions and the intense thoughts keep just fluttering in, just keep reminding yourself to hold the thought and instead focus on next steps, positive actions positive words. This isn't positive thinking. It's not toxic positivity. This is just redirecting your thoughts when they're sort of going whack to a clearer mental space. Cause that's part of you too. You have clarity in there. You have a place in there that is, that has less emotional charge where you can anchor yourself. You can remind yourself that's your home. That's, that's, that's where you go when things get crazy is into this, this home inside. You're not suppressing your feelings. You're just postponing expressing your feelings until you're a little more regulated. And contrary to popular belief, by the way, you don't have to talk things out to get regulated. Talking about your feelings, it's important, but there's a time and a place, and sometimes that best time and place is later when it will be helpful and constructive and when it will help you have and keep and strengthen relationships with people you love, people you treasure, even though it doesn't feel like that when you're emotionally dysregulated. So when this happens, just keep reminding yourself by silently telling yourself, I'm feeling dysregulated. And then use your tools, stop venting, remind yourself that you don't need to express yourself and clear the air right then. Your words will be there, your feelings will be there waiting for you when you're calmer. You will have access to yourself. You'll be no longer dysregulated. And then when you express yourself, you can do it elegantly and with fairness and love. It'll feel great to keep your relationship gentle like this and to get past the shame of overreactions. And then you can enjoy the way that your connections with other people, rather than getting ruined, begin to get nicer, deeper, stronger over time. I wanna talk more specifically about dysregulation, how you know when it's happening and what to do once you notice that. So let's start with the regulated state, what it feels like. When we're calm, brain activity is even, and it's driving body responses and emotions in an even and predictable way. But when strong emotions trigger dysregulation, our thinking changes and we can go into reactivity. We might withdraw and get silent or get confused and say things or freak out or do something impulsive. It's hard to perceive accurately what's going on in those moments, like 
What just happened? What's the actual problem? Is it me or the other person? What am I supposed to say? In our dysregulated state, we might totally misread whether a person is safe or dangerous, and we can't tell whether our words and actions are appropriate to the situation. Do you know that feeling? And sometimes we say things and do things that we later regret. So how do you know if you're dysregulated? The trick is to recognize the signs, and they might be a little different in different people, but here are some clues. One is you feel spaced out. You're at a loss for words. You can't remember where you are or why you walked into a room. You feel scattered. You're trying to do a lot of things at once, but you're finishing nothing. Uh, you're tripping over things, dropping things, losing things. Uh, your voice and facial expressions are flat. Or you're in a rage, or you feel a huge urgency to express what's bothering you. Or you can't feel parts of your body, your hands, your mouth, your face, your nose, your feet. And dysregulation often begins with an emotional flood. You get very upset or scared from something that's said or something that happens. But sometimes the trigger is nothing you even notice. You can wake up dysregulated, in fact. So touching briefly again on the chemical imbalance question, yes, in theory, some of those symptoms could happen not because of dysregulation, but because of a chemical imbalance. And it's certainly likely that anything happening in your brain or body has a chemical component. But either way, it's not always important what the cause of your symptoms is. It's really just important to know what to do. So I've written this all down in a brand new download that you can access through a link in the description section below. And I talk about these signs of dysregulation and the things that you can do right away to start re-regulating now. But let's go over them here. So first, you can notice you're dysregulated. And if you can do this one thing, you can control your negative impulses and just give yourself some time and space to re-regulate before you begin saying anything or doing anything that could be destructive. Are you flooding with emotion? Are you full of adrenaline? Are you panicking? So say to yourself, I'm having an emotional reaction. And then two, you gotta be safe. This is not a good time to drive a car. Seriously, if you're dysregulated, pull over and take your time. Don't go running into a crosswalk or try to use a table saw. Give all your focus to getting yourself into a physically safe place where you can just pause. Now, if you're threatened with violence, well, some of this won't apply. Just return all your focus to getting yourself into a physically safe place, whatever it takes. If what triggered you was an argument, a verbal argument, instead of escalating the fight, you can use gentle words to stop the interaction, at least temporarily, and that really helps dysregulation. You can say things like, I want to continue this conversation, but I need to take a breather to calm down. Or if you don't want to tell the other person that you're triggered, tell them that you need to go to the bathroom. Or if you're on the phone, say that you have a call on the other line and you'll call them back. When you need to step back from a situation, you don't have to get into a big discussion about it. Because remember, talking about it can actually make dysregulation worse. So just find a way to put the conversation on pause. So another goal there is just to buy some time. Separate from the other person if you're getting triggered by the conversation and go into a room by yourself, even if it's the bathroom. No one has to know what you're doing. If, if the discussion feels urgent to you, take even longer before you try to resolve anything. Wait until you're re-regulated. Now here's a quick technique, and this one's very good for kids of all ages. Stamp your feet on the floor. 
you would be amazed how helpful it is to bring yourself back into present time and into your body. And as you stamp each foot, say quietly to yourself, right, left, right, left. And this helps your brain begin to re-regulate. It's responding to what you're saying and what you're doing and the feeling coming through your feet. And another measure you can take that no one knows you're doing is you can press your tongue to the back of your teeth. This right there, just press it there. That's a way to get back in your body. And you can sit down. You can feel the weight of your butt in the chair. And this is yet another way to get back inside your body, bringing your awareness to what you're sensing. And sometimes what you need is to eat something. When you're stressed, you're probably going to crave carbs and sugar, but it's protein foods that will help you get grounded again. And if you need some comfort, you can wash your hands and you can feel the water and soap on your hands. Warm water is particularly nice. My brother taught me this technique. And if you have a trusty friend with you, you can get a good squeezing hug. It can really help re-regulate your brain. And if no one's around, you can try pressing your back into the corner of where two walls meet and wrap your arms around each other so that you can feel pressure around your torso because we're wired to calm down when we're hugged. I'm constantly living in dysregulation. I try to control my emotions by holding back when I'm upset. They don't seem to ever release after the situation is resolved. Uh, okay, so that sounds to me a lot like what it's like to have childhood PTSD. And so, Olivia, you know about dysregulation. You're familiar with the word. And probably you found, I have, I don't know, probably 30 videos about dysregulation there, and I talk about it. But the one thing that I just say over and over and over again is please try the daily practice that I teach. It's a, it's a set of techniques. I teach them for free. It takes 40 minutes for me to teach, so I don't teach them in videos. I teach it in a, you just sign up for a free course and you can take it, and there's a PDF that you can take. And Harry, could you maybe grab the link to the um, daily practice and put that in there just in case anybody is wondering where that is. I mention it in videos and occasionally people complain. They're like, you're always talking about that. It's like, well, you keep talking about feeling symptomatic with CPTSD. So I'm going to tell you how I healed. And that's how I did it. Um, I got very regular twice a day with this practice, this very specific technique of writing followed by meditation. Um, now that's the beginning of it. Like I couldn't really even take information in until I could re-regulate my brain a little bit more. The way that I experience dysregulation is I just, you know, I can barely, I can barely follow what other people are talking about. And if I'm sitting in a group discussion, I can't, um, you know, I'll hear a little, little bits here and there, but mostly I'm sort of like falling back into my own thoughts about it. And so the daily practice helps me just get all those thoughts that are sort of dominating my screen there and get them on paper and get them released or removed and then start to have perception again. Having clear perception is everything. But the thing nobody ever told us is that dysregulation is a brain thing. So a lot of what all of us have tried in the past to deal with our trauma symptoms, well, we first of all, we didn't know they were trauma symptoms. They're totally normal. Dysregulation where you're discombobulated, you can't focus, maybe your emotions get too big or they get too small. Um, and there's long-term effects that you can't feel in the moment, but it's affecting your immune system. It's affecting your hormones. It's affecting your blood flow. It's affecting your lifespan. So learning to notice when you're dysregulate, dysregulated and then getting re-regulated is the most powerful thing you can do for your healing. And it sets the stage for you to have choices about what else you want to do to change your life. You know, maybe you want to go to therapy. Well, when you're dysregulated, all that talking about trauma 
can just make you more dysregulated. So it's so important to know, wait, 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 I'm getting dysregulated. I can't keep talking right now and get re-regulated. It's also really important for having a relationship of any kind, friendship, romantic relationship, because you know what happens when you get dysregulated in a conflict or something where you have fear somebody is against you or not into you and it'll start to, you know, it starts to get the dysregulation going in your perception and you don't know what's going on. And you either think, oh, it's just me. I'll just put up with anything or it's all them. I'm going to yell at them. And neither one is a good relationship strategy. So this is why I just put such a premium on learning re-regulation. So I have five courses. One of them is the daily practice and it's free, but there are four paid courses. And one of them is the dysregulation bootcamp. And that course it's um, the least expensive course. It's a 20-day thing. Every day for 20 days, you get a video or one or more videos, and you get a worksheet, and it's working on one facet of dysregulation after another, and it's building up. So in the first week, you're sort of getting your full deck of tools, and you start to, you're keeping like a log of what you're doing to notice your dysregulation. When did it happen? What did you do about it? What did it feel like? And then, and then I'm teaching you all these um, typical triggers, like here's a typical trigger, here's what happens, here's what to do. And then I talk about, you know, some of the approaches that you can use, everything from physical, yoga, meditation, talking, medicine, you know, there's so many ways to come at this. I teach things that you can do all by yourself and um, with paper and pen <laughs> and two feet stomping or, um, or uh, cold water, hot water, things like that. So very simple things that you can do yourself. The dysregulation boot camp we have on sale twice a year. And right now it's on sale. It's normally $139 USD. And right now it's $97. So Harry, I don't know if you've got that link and you could get that in there in the thread. That would be terrific. I see you had it up there. You could put it again now that I talked about it. So um, I love that. Uh, sorry, the dysregulation boot camp. It's really um, foundational. It's foundational, and it's an easy entry point into the, into my teaching, so that you can try something that's easy and immediately useful, and see if you think that other things are for you. So um, you know, the courses go deeper and deeper into these topics and broader things like connecting with people and having romantic relationships. And then I have my coaching programs, which is the deepest of all, which is 12 weeks long and you kind of stay with it. So that's all there. So if you're dysregulated, I would just say, here's what I know how to do. I, you know, I barely ever knew anybody talking about this. They're starting to now, but um, I, I, I try to offer the best tools I know of. And a lot of times people write and they say, well, I'm using this other, this other approach and I like it. And I'm like, great. If it's working for you, I like it too. But, um, I just teach what worked for me. I teach what worked for me. I understand it really well. And I'm good at teaching it because I've done it so long. And, and, um, you know, some, there are some methodologies out there for healing trauma that didn't work for me. They do work for other people, but they didn't work for me. So of course I don't teach that. You should, you know, you could go to a teacher who teaches that. I really support people to try a lot of things, to um, test out things that you think might work. And if it doesn't work, just move on. You be the captain of your healing. This is your project. Don't wait for some professional to diagnose and tell you what to do. They don't always know. They're not you. So um, the link for the link for the free course is always down in the description section. There's a my, my website, crappychildhoodfairy.com has a page called free tools and it's got four quizzes and the free course and all of that is free. So you can always go there to my website, free tools page. And the free tools page is always linked near the top of the description section under the videos. 
And then the individual course, the daily practice is linked again down further down in the description section. So hopefully you'll find it. YouTube is a little clunky for trying to share information or prioritize it. How do I differentiate how do I differentiate what's emotional dysregulation due to ADHD versus childhood PTSD? Ah, you know, I'm not sure I have a good answer for that. Except that if your ADHD has been addressed by a doctor, you know, follow those instructions. If you some people have never really been diagnosed with it or treated for it, which might be fine. It might be fine, but we, you know, it's kind of like the word we casually use for having difficulty focusing, which also happens to be a core symptom of, of child of complex PTSD. And let me just say right here, you'll hear me say those two things back and forth. Childhood PTSD is a casual term for complex PTSD that started in childhood. So complex PTSD or CPTSD is the official term, but most people don't know what it is. And childhood PTSD, like everybody kind of instinctively understands what we're talking about. So with ADHD, a lot of researchers who work in the child in the complex PTSD field think quite possibly that a lot of ADHD diagnoses are misdiagnosed CPTSD. Here in the United States where I am, they don't even yet recognize complex PTSD as a thing in the manual. Like it's talked about, but it doesn't have its own code in the manual. And they're debating right now whether to lump it under regular old PTSD or, or borderline personality disorder, which, which it truly isn't. CPTSD, the beautiful thing about it is, uh, well, the, the difference between regular old PTSD, that tends to come from one event or an intense period of trauma that's, that in some people will set off these symptoms, flashbacks, difficulty sleeping, nightmares, emotional dysregulation. Complex PTSD is PTSD that comes from trauma over a long period of time, like growing up in a home that was abusive or neglectful, growing up in a terrible neighborhood, going to a school where you were bullied like year after year. It's complex PTSD. And when it happens when you're a kid, it has specific neurological effects that are unique. So I really, in my opinion, there's a strong argument to keep complex CPTSD as a distinct category from regular old PTSD. And we always say, oh, like, like people who have been in combat. Now, people who go to the military in the first place have a higher than average rate of, of childhood PTSD. So some people have both PTSD and complex PTSD. And I'll tell you for me, like I, my childhood was traumatic and I, the symptoms were somewhat contained for a long time until one day when I was just about 30, I was attacked on the street. My mom died and a guy broke up with me and all that trauma at once gave me PTSD, like present time adult PTSD. But what also happened is that the Pandora's box of my childhood trauma opened and all these old symptoms that didn't used to be so bad were upon me. And I got very, very dysfunctional all of the sudden. And I really needed help to get out of it. And that's when I learned about the daily practice. Initially, I was trying to get help for that through, you know, conventional therapy, going to the doctor. And it was minimally helpful. It wasn't, it wasn't helping the primary symptom, which was profound dysregulation, profound dysregulation. What's dysregulation if you're new to the channel? It can be emotional where your emotions are too much or totally flat. It can be neurological, and that can be 
feel like you're discombobulated, you're numb, you're feeling clumsy, you're feeling spaced out. Have you ever driven somewhere and you just kind of like couldn't remember the part? Like I've had this before. I live near San Francisco and you drive across the bridge for 10 minutes to two hours, depending on traffic. But sometimes driving across the bridge, I'm in San Francisco and I'm like, I just don't remember being on the bridge. I just don't remember it. So I was kind of like checking out during that time. I could still drive. I must have, I must have driven okay. I'm still intact. Or I've driven away from the gas pump with the, for, with, the, with the spout thing still in the car before when I was very, very dysregulated. But dysregulation can also affect your cognition, your ability to think and learn and remember. It can affect your immune system. It can affect your, your, your hormonal system. It changes how your body interacts with food. It changes your reproductive um, uh, cycles. It changes... It, it changes literally everything in your body. I can't think of anything it doesn't change. We'll find out if there's anything it doesn't change. Trauma is a leading cause of bad health outcomes. It's, it's associated with cancer, diabetes, heart disease, dementia, obesity. I've been talking a lot about the weight gain. Traumatized people often kind of tip over into a carb a sensitivity to carbohydrates like flour and sugar. That's the, what bright line eating is about. It's uh, It helps with that. You can heal that sort of hormonal dysregulation around your insulin and leptin that changes that insatiable craving and hunger that happens with overeating. So dysregulation. <laughs> um is a big part of it. Dysregulation produces ADHD symptoms. Is it actual ADHD? I don't know. You know, it's some people, I, I'm not a doctor, but a lot of people who are and who are researchers in this area and who are therapists think that the diagnostic criteria are not clear enough that you could really say that anybody diagnosed with one or the other, that that was a definitive diagnosis. So maybe if it makes sense for you to keep an open mind about what it might be, um, that would be good. You could do more research. You could get a second opinion. And whatever you do here at Crappy Childhood Fairy, we're working on the symptom of not being able to focus or pay attention. And these techniques are used by people who have ADHD, who have autism, who have CPTSD diagnosed or undiagnosed, who have um, borderline personality. You can use these techniques to calm your symptoms no matter what the diagnosis is. The proof is in the pudding. Does it help you feel better? Does it help you think better? Does it help you connect and feel, feel present again? So that's the thing to look for. I'd say give it a try. Anybody who wants to try the free course, if you want to go deeper, come be a member. And this one I want to talk about, and this will sound kind of weird, but the upside of dysregulation. There's a little tiny something positive sometimes that can make dysregulation kind of feel good, short term anyway. There can be kind of a little dance inside between the part of dysregulation that just kind of occurs beyond our control, driven by processes deep in our nervous system, and the little things that we can do in response to the first signs of dysregulation. We can either pull back and regulate, or we can give into it and let dysregulation unfold. Now, why would we want to do that? This is just my personal observation. Sometimes dysregulation can provide a little relief under stress. It's a very expensive vacation from that stress, but it's a way to check out and just take the edge off. When things are horrible and intense, like maybe you're in a horrible argument with your partner, dysregulation can help you go from burning inside emotionally to just being spaced out and emotionally numb. That flood of emotions that hits when you're triggered, it's not something you're doing on purpose, 
but at times there may be a tiny choice to be made in there about whether to hang in there and take steps to de-escalate the argument or to maybe amp it up so that it gets bad enough to flip your PTSD switch and give you that dysregulation break. That mode of dysregulation where you get so upset that you suddenly go spaced out and emotionally numb might also be called dissociation. And some people find that dissociation can provide a reset or a reboot for an overwhelmed system, like kind of like a thunderstorm after the clouds have been building up. And I don't mean to make it sound poetic or beautiful because using emotional blowups to get calm has a terrible cost. It'll destroy everything good in the long run, including your relationship. But it's a technique of sorts that we maybe learned as kids when we needed to distance ourselves from trauma that was happening right there and then for the very good reason that we needed to protect our impressionable and tender little selves. And it's natural and normal for kids who experience violence and neglect to learn to check out. And thank God we learned, okay? We made it. And you know, even in adulthood, checking out can be handy. It's a skill. I do it in the dentist chair and I, I've been doing it in long, boring meetings for years, and I've done it in scary movies, and I've even had nightmares where I was getting chased by a lion, and right when the moment comes where I'm definitely going to get killed and eaten, even in the dream, I whoosh, I check out, and I block myself from having that experience. So it is, it's wired in there, and while it's good for coping with giant dream predators, it's way better in adult life to learn to hang in there, protect yourself, and stay in the driver's seat, so to speak, so that you can work things out. Otherwise, this cozy, comfy side of dysregulation can lead to greater trauma and more self-sabotage. It's like drugging yourself. Now, all over my YouTube channel, all over my blog, I'm always talking about my daily practice. And these are the two techniques that I've been doing for 25 years that have helped to treat my symptoms of childhood PTSD and have helped me learn to go from dysregulation to re-regulation. And I'm telling you, when your brain is re-regulated, the world is your oyster. So many things become possible. So for everyone out there who relates to the problem of dysregulation, uh, I not only wanna teach you how to do it, but I wanna give you a little background on how I developed this. The daily practice not only helps you build re-regulation, but it helps you feel better emotionally. It gives you some calm and relief, and it helps you build an ever more stable and regulated state. So here's a little background. The first thing that ever helped my daily re-regulation practice was something I learned way back in 1994 when a friend of mine who happens to be in Alcoholics Anonymous noticed that I was basically freaking out. I was in a lot of panic and pain about my life. I was severely dysregulated, but that concept wasn't really known at the time. I didn't know about it. I was in a dark place and I was desperate. So even though I'm not an alcoholic, she offered to show me her daily practice. It kept her sober. And I basically would have tried anything. And the first thing she showed me was a way of writing down the fearful and resentful thoughts in my mind. And in the 12-step world where she came from, this is called a personal inventory. Now, most people would never have heard of her very specific technique, even people in the 12-step world, but I had the good fortune to learn from her. Now, back then, I really didn't know what was wrong with me. I was just someone who couldn't seem to get over bad things. I tell parts of this story at the beginning of my course, Healing Childhood PTSD, 
My mother was dying of lung cancer. I had just said goodbye to her for the last time. A man I had dated ended our relationship. And in the middle of this, for no apparent reason, I was violently assaulted while I was walking down the street. And as a result of this trauma, though I didn't have a name for it then, I was massively dysregulated. I was crying half the time. I was having outbursts of temper. I was getting lost on the way home from the grocery store six blocks away. I was super ADHD-ish, and I was too unfocused to even read a, a short paragraph. And I mean, my childhood PTSD was boiling up to the surface like a volcano. But not even the professionals knew what that was then. They knew I had a concussion, but they didn't quite know what this was. So the doctor couldn't help me. My therapist really tried, but I was just melting down in her office three times a week. And secretly, I was looking at a fork in the road of either I die or I go in for hospitalization. But I did not see a way to actually feel better. And then, thank God, my AA friend came along and she saw what was happening and suggested that I do what she was doing. And I didn't have an issue with alcohol, but I had an issue with sanity and survival. So I was like, yes, please show me. And even that very first time when she showed me, it was like breathing oxygen for the first time. Every time I wrote, it took the edge off. And as I kept doing it, I started to feel pretty good, actually. I started making new friends and doing better at work, and I started running, and I even started going to 12-step programs that are just for people who grew up with alcoholism in the family, which was awesome, and I still go sometimes. And that's something I want to say. 12-step programs are really great, and I recommend them to anyone who thinks that they should maybe check them out. Just check it out. So the daily practice I was doing was going really well, and I kept going, first a year, then five years, then 10 years. And it was only after 12 years that I tried an experiment to see if I still really needed it. Because to be honest, I wasn't that happy anymore. I wasn't dysregulated all the time, but I was still in a lot of self-defeating behavior. I was choosing bad relationships. I was having a lot of health problems. My first marriage had blown up. And now I was a single mom struggling with my boss and money and my neighbors and feeling lonely. So I thought, screw it, this never worked. And I just quit my whole daily practice. And what happened when I stopped is that I dropped slowly. I didn't realize anything was wrong at first. I dropped slowly, but really severely back into dysregulation. And all the old struggles of poor focus and depression and anxiety and bad judgment and even more insane relationships, including one short one with a guy who killed himself. And these medical problems I was having and the shame and isolation that go with that. And honestly, it just about broke me. But in a way, I treasure it because things got bad enough that I tried again to get help. And this time, I found out I have PTSD. And suddenly, the jagged, crazy pieces of the puzzle came together. I could see why a lot of stuff like therapy had never worked and why my daily practice had worked for me because it was treating my PTSD, my dysregulation. I would have never known that if I hadn't stopped. So I got back into it again, only this time I adapted it for my PTSD and used the parts that actually re-regulated me. And then I added a few things that helped me structure my life and I worked step by step to stay regulated, stay on track and reach goals I never thought were possible for me. And that's been the magic formula that's allowed me to grow into the happy life of love and usefulness that I get to have today. I've shared this now with hundreds of friends 
and now thousands of strangers through my blog and YouTube channel, and just people miscellaneous who hear that I have a technique that can help them, and they call me from all over the world. So what I'm showing you is my own program, adapted from pieces I learned from now several mentors and friends, and from my own reading and research on what works and what doesn't work for healing childhood PTSD. It doesn't cover everything out there, and if I had to give you scientific evidence for all of it, I couldn't do that. It's based on my experience, and the miracles that have happened for me and that I've witnessed firsthand in others, the daily practice has helped me to get my brain back and get my emotions back and prepared me to make the big changes in my principles and actions so that I could move out of that life full of problems and grow into this one, full of love and safety and growth. And I've had a couple of medical miracles happen as a result of this daily practice too. And those are stories I'm still saving for a future boot camp or course. But I want to say whether or not you believe in miracles or God or the power outside of ourselves that can help us, the power of this daily practice doesn't change. I think, like a lot of things really, healing and miracles take place on multiple levels. They can be psychological, they can also be at the same time physical, spiritual, and scientific. And that's what this technique is. I don't want to overthink it or overexplain it because your own experience of it is really the only thing that matters here. For myself, I've sometimes been a science-only kind of person, and at other times I have been guided by a strong faith. And this daily practice has carried me and worked for me through all of it. It's for everyone. If you're someone who believes in God and prays, this is for you. And if you're an atheist or a Buddhist or nature is your church or you're a recovering alcoholic or wherever you are on the spectrum of belief, what I'm going to show you is compatible and it's for you. The power of the daily practice doesn't depend on what you believe. It just depends on whether or not you do it. Real quick, what the daily practice is, it's two techniques. First, a writing technique to get the fears and resentments out of your mind. And it's been my experience that those spinning stress thoughts that make me so reactive, when you break them down, are basically one of two things. I'm fearful or I'm resentful. And yes, I'm simplifying the range of negative emotions here, but these two concepts, fear and resentment, are sufficient to get it out and onto paper. Now, if you're thinking, oh, I'll just skip the lesson and start writing fears and resentments, like Anna said, it won't work like that. There's a real technique to it that results in feeling a release from those negative emotions, not just focusing on them or basically ranting with a pen. But no worries, you can learn to use the full technique in less than an hour in the free course. Now, the second piece of the technique in the daily practice is a simple meditation, and the course teaches you how to do that. If you already have a really solid established meditation practice, you could use that, but even then, you might want to try my super simple method because the goal of what I'm teaching you might be a little different. It's intentionally very simple, not demanding, and it's very relaxing. And this is not only good for your brain, but it makes the two techniques a lot easier to stick with over time, and they work best when practiced twice a day, every day. So. I thought I'd share with you the 10 most common questions that I get about the daily practice, okay? Number one, what if I don't have time to write and meditate twice a day? You were thinking that, right? 
Okay, that's a very good question. And honestly, most people have this concern, including me when I first started. Hardly anyone has time to spare. And one of the reasons many of us feel so squished for time is because our minds are so full of thoughts that we struggle to focus or be clear about what we want or stick to plans or basically get things done. So the surprise benefit of the daily practice is that even though it takes time, it feels like we have more time. And this is because it very quickly improves our ability to pay attention and it reduces the amount of sort of wheel spinning in our minds that's otherwise just sucking time and energy out of your day pretty much constantly. But you'll have to try it to experience this. The second most common thing people ask me is they say, I have a hard time meditating. Can I just skip that part? And the answer is yes, you can do this however you like to do it. The reason though that I suggest you do meditate immediately after you write is because, well, that's what I was taught and it worked, but also 25 years of teaching other people how to do this has convinced me that it does work better together. The writing works better when you meditate afterwards and the meditation works better with writing before it, if that makes sense. They go together. And one reason I've noticed is you can't necessarily feel it in the moment, but writing is hard work for your mind and for your spirit. And so people who only write and don't meditate will pretty soon find it tiring and they'll have trouble sustaining it. So yeah, I always call them twin techniques. They go together. Another common question is people say, I have my own form of meditation, like mindfulness or Vipassana or whatever they have. Can I just do that? And I say, yes, you can do whatever works for you. I always say that, right? And if you have an established meditation practice that's almost automatic for you, that would be a good form of meditation to use. But if you are not that far along with meditation or it's not easy for you, I suggest that you try my simple form of meditation because it's easy to do and for most people it's more restful than most other formal ways of meditating. There's no need to focus on posture or breath or even emptying your mind. The goal here is just effortlessness. Although I don't even want to use the word goal because that implies a lot of effort. If you like simple meditation and you want to go further with it, one way you could do that is by finding a teacher and actually getting trained in a simple form like transcendental meditation or its generic form, which is called Vedic meditation. Okay, people often ask about how well meditation fits with their religion. People often say, I'm Christian or, they, or another religion, and I'm looking for a form of meditation that's aligned with my faith. And that's not a problem. In lieu of a mantra, you can use a holy name or a passage from scripture to repeat silently to yourself. And if you find that this requires a lot of effort and you're not getting the relaxation that's important for healing, you could always stick with the neutral mantras like the word this or the word okay, just to occupy your mind so you don't completely forget you're meditating and start doing things. Okay, people also ask me, what if writing about fears and resentments brings up negative feelings and makes them worse? So if you're feeling worse when you write, it's probably one of two things. You might be digging too much into the past or analyzing what you write, like getting into it rather than just jotting down what's already on your mind. Or you may be trying to do too much by trying to do it right or perfectly or even trying to add to it. So consider just pouring out your thoughts on paper and releasing them, or better yet, asking for them to be removed if you're a God person, and just keep it simple. Let the technique do all the work.
And then people ask me, will I have to write and meditate for the rest of my life? And the answer is no, you don't have to, but if it's really working for you, you'll probably find that a regular practice works better than an occasional one, and that keeping it going works better than dropping it. But pretty much, you can let your own experience be your guide on this. Now, some people say, I don't have resentment. Can I just write fears? And I say, ha, everyone has resentments. Maybe it's at other drivers. Maybe it's at a political party. Maybe it's at yourself in the form of shame or guilt. Think about it. Maybe it's at the supermarket because they put out meat so close to its expiration date. Maybe you have resentment at me for insisting that you have resentment. It isn't always a big thing. Sometimes it's trivial, but everyone has resentment. And the paper is the perfect place to admit it. Okay, some people tell me, I'm worried that if I release my fears, I'll just be allowing people to abuse me. And that was initially my worry too. But if anything, having less fear has made me braver about standing up for myself. It's made me clearer about when a problem is really in my mind and when it's actually happening and I need to do something about it. Or maybe I don't have to do anything about it, but what I don't do is let people walk all over me just by having less fear. That's not how it works. This is really common. People tell me that they're writing a gratitude list at the end of the writing, and they want to know, is that okay? And the answer is always, yes, you can do whatever you like. And focusing on gratitude is a really wonderful thing to do. But just while you're doing the daily practice, I suggest that you set aside the gratitude list, get the fears and resentment on paper, close your eyes and meditate. And most days, you'll just find yourself experiencing more gratitude as a result anyway. So let the daily practice do its work on you just in a simple form. And then when you're done, you can pray, write your intentions for the day, read spiritual literature, list things that you're grateful for, do push-ups, Whatever it is that's part of your positive routine is perfect to add in at that point. And finally, a lot of people ask if the daily practice can be shown to their children or partner or friends and how they can encourage that. And the great thing is, absolutely anyone can do this, even small children. My own kids learned the technique before they could even write, and I just had them scribble on paper while they told me their fears and resentments. And I wrote for them, like taking dictation. Older kids can write it themselves, and teenagers absolutely love this technique, or some of them do. You know, they're teenagers. They don't want to be forced to do anything. But the best way to attract someone to this practice is to do it yourself. If it's working for you, people will notice the change and ask you about it. I don't recommend pushing this or anything else on people, even if you feel sure it would help them. Everyone needs to come to it in their own time. Hurrying. Hurrying is a huge dysregulator for a lot of us. Everything from trying to get out the door in the morning to driving in a rushed way through traffic to just getting overwhelmed with everything you're trying to get done in a day. And here's the thing. Most hurrying comes not because of society, not because of technology, but something much more ordinary than that. Are you ready for that? It's procrastination. We all do it not getting up out of bed after the alarm goes off, not getting out the door or leaving enough time to get where we're going. And what's one huge reason we procrastinate? That's right, dysregulation. So it's a vicious circle, procrastinating, dysregulating, hurrying, dysregulating, procrastinating some more, and so on. Our minds love a sense of spaciousness in time. Taking your time is wonderfully regulating. When's the last time you took a shower and stopped and just enjoyed the feeling of the water or brushed your teeth without a feeling of pressure to hurry up? 
This pushing, pushing all the time can overwhelm us. And overwhelm all by itself triggers dysregulation. Our minds love doing things with careful attention. But the PTSD in us feels scared of slow, mindful processes because the bad feelings might get in. There have been times when I stopped to think about why I was hurrying so damn much all the time. And the best I could come up with was that I felt like I was being chased by emotions. I call it the pack of wolves. And funnily enough, when I sat in meditation and imagined the wolves came and just got me, nothing terrible happened, maybe a bit of a cry, and then it passes. But for a long time, I was running from that. So I hurried and hurried, and in my kind of dysregulation, hurrying makes me start losing my keys and spilling food down my shirt. So then I'm way late getting out the door. In one two-week period once where I was intensely dysregulated, I drove away from the gas station with the pump still in my car and then rear-ended a truck. Talk about brainwaves just kind of rolling like a river over rocks. When I'm dysregulated, I will start bumping my head on open cabinet doors and shutting my fingers in the fridge. And worst of all, I can't get anything done when I'm dysregulated. So the irony is that all that hurrying just ends up making everything take a really long time. If you're from the United States, you'll remember the kids' show, Mr. Rogers. There's a beautiful movie that came out about him called Won't You Be My Neighbor? So wherever you are in the world, you can probably access that online. And I highly, highly recommend it. My grandmother, who cared for me after preschool every afternoon when I was four years old, used to let me watch Mr. Rogers, but no other TV shows because she said most shows were too frenetic and they got me all wound up. And definitely when I was four, she knew that I was going through a lot of trauma at home. There was fighting and violence and just threats all the time. I was terrified of silly things like dripping faucets or being in a car driving over a hill. And, you know, this was in San Francisco, so sometimes you're going up the hill and you can't see what's on the other side. But I would just panic thinking, there's a cliff there, we're going to fall thousands of feet. But Mr. Rogers started each episode by, he'd walk in the door of his home, it was a set, of course, he'd walk in, he'd say hello, he was singing, he'd unbutton his jacket, he'd carefully hang it in the closet, then he'd take out his cardigan and he'd put that on very slowly, and then he'd take off his leather shoes, and he'd put them in the closet, and he'd take out his sneakers, and he'd put those on, and you'd get this close-up so that you could watch his hands, like tying the laces, and it was totally mesmerizing. And he made that show because he knew a lot of kids around him were going through trauma. And it was his ministry to hang out with us for half an hour each day and show us ordinary things done in a slow and ordinary way. Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content, think about joining my membership program. You can find out more information about that and all my courses and coaching programs at crappychildhoodfairy.com. Remember, healing is possible. People with childhood PTSD can have a wonderful life. Sometimes we just need a few workarounds. I'll see you next time.